0: If I am a poet of witness or a poet at all then I am not telling the truth if I only witness atrocity. It is there if you want it but there must be something else there because we keep facing it and part of what I have to write about because I have to tell the truth is that thing that keeps us facing the not just the atrocity but what keeps us facing the atrocity and moving through the atrocity and surviving the atrocity and thriving in spite of the atrocity.
1: Almost exactly a year ago, on May 21st, 2019, Seattle Arts and Lectures closed our poetry series with a reading by Jericho Brown. That reading was followed by a conversation with Copper Canyon editor and poet Elena Ellis. The evening was riveting and joy-filled, a celebration of Jericho's third book, The Tradition. That book went on to win the Pulitzer Prize in poetry. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Associate Director of Seattle Arts & Lectures, and this is Sal On Air, a collection of engaging talks and readings from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts & Lectures. Here we are, a year later, in a starkly different world, a world where we cannot gather together in the shared space of a theater to hear poetry a world where jericho's poems of rage and grief at the pandemic of violence against black people in this country are newly resonant a year ago when i introduced jericho i wrote that like the poppy ticking in my garden the bomb bloom on these poems is beautifully ominous and keeps coming back read after read year after year resilient fierce tender it's still true even more so now. The brutality of our country keeps coming back. The best poetry, Jericho's poetry, can be a space of healing and a space of learning, a space of revelation and anger that inspires action. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, I invite you to put on your imaginary flower crown to imagine the shared space of change that we are making and to get ready to encounter the devastating genius of Jericho Brown. This is Sal On Air. I'm
0: going to read you some poems. Is it okay? Uh, My poems are the best representation I have of my soul on earth. So I am happy to share my soul with you. Where I'm from, no matter what we began, we always began it with prayer. So... Prayer of the backhanded, not the palm, not the pear tree switch, not the broomstick, nor the closest extension cord, not his braided belt, but God bless the back of my daddy's hand, which holding nothing tightly against me and not wrapped in leather, eliminated the air between itself and my cheek make full this dimpled cheek unworthy of its unfisted print and forgive my forgetting the love of a hand hungry for reflex a hand that took no thought of its target like hail from a blind sky involuntary fast but brutal in its bruising father I bear the bridge of what might have been a broken nose. I lift to you what was a busted lip. Bless the boy who believes his best beatings lack intention, the mark of the beast. Bring back to life the son who glories in the sin of immediacy, calling it love. God, save the man. Whose arm, like an angel's invisible wing, may fly backward in fury, whether or not his son stands near. Help me hold in place my blazing jaw as I think to say, Excuse me. <laughs> Labor. I spent what light Saturday sent sweating and learned to cuss cutting grass for women kind enough to say they couldn't tell the damn difference between their vacuumed carpets and their mowed lawns just before handing over a $5 bill rolled tighter than a joint and asking me in to change a few light bulbs. I called those women old Because they wouldn't move out of a chair without my help. Or walk without a hand at the base of their backs. I call them old. And they must have been. They're all dead now. Dead and in the earth I once tended. The loneliest people have the earth to love. And not one friend. Their own age. Only mothers to baby them. And big sisters to boss them around. Women you want to please and pray for the chance to say please to I don't do that kind of work anymore My job is to look at the childhood I hated and say I once had something to do with my hands I'm glad y'all a clapping audience I'm reading 49 poems. You're gonna see if you <laughs> <laughs> uh, One of the things that I find that I'm doing in my work over and over again is um, resurrecting and reclaiming much of the language that I heard when I was growing up. Uh, I lived, uh, I grew up in Louisiana. I lived for a long time, for a little while in, uh, in East Texas. And when I left there, I moved to San Diego, California. And that's where I found out I had an accent and, um, but I also found out that there were all these words and phrases that were a part of the community where I grew up um, that weren't actually in the dictionary, that weren't actual words. Um, and this, the, the title uh, of, of this next poem is, is one of those phrases. Four day in the morning. My mother grew morning glories that spilled onto the walkway toward her porch. Because she was a woman with land who showed as much by giving it color. She told me I could have whatever I worked for. That means she was an American, but she'd say it was because she believed in God. I am ashamed of America and confounded by God. I thank God for my citizenship in spite of the timer set on my life to write these words. I love my mother. I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blooms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue, I'll never know who started the lie that we are lazy. But I'd love to wake that bastard up at forty in the morning, toss him in a truck, and drive him under God, past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go work for whatever they want. A house? A boy to keep the lawn cut? Some color in the yard? My God, we leave things green. when I left Atlanta, I moved, when I left San Diego, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia where I live now. Hero. She never knew one of us from another, so my brothers and I grew up fighting over our mother's mind. Like sun-colored suitors in a Greek myth, we were willing to do evil. We kept chocolate around our mouths. The last of her mother's lot, She cried at funerals, cried when she whipped me. She whipped me. Daily. I am most interested in people who declare gratitude for their childhood beatings. None of them took what my mother gave. Waking us for school with sharp slaps to our bare thighs. That side of the family is darker. I should be grateful. So I will be. No one on earth knows how many abortions happened before a woman risked her freedom by giving that risk a name, by taking it to breast. I don't know why I am alive now that I still cannot impress the woman who whipped me into being. I turned my mother into a grandmother. She thanks me by kissing my sons. Gratitude is black. Black as a hero returning from war to a country that banked on his death. Thank God, it can't get much darker than that. As a human being, there is the happiness you have and the happiness you deserve. They sit apart from each other the way you and your mother sat on opposite ends of the sofa after an ambulance came to take your father away. Some good doctor will stitch him up, and soon an aunt will arrive to drive your mother to the hospital, where she will settle next to him forever, as promised. She holds the arm of her seat as if she could fall, as if it is the only sturdy thing, and it is. Since you've done what you always wanted, you fought your father and won, marred him. He'll have a scar he can see, all because of you and your mother, the only woman you ever cried for, must tend to it as a bride tends to her vows, forsaking all others, no matter how sore the injury No matter how sore the injury has left you, you sit understanding yourself as a human being, finally free now that nobody's got to love you. Uh, The title of this next poem is another one of those words um, that I heard growing up. That word is nim Uh, in the South. Some of you are from the South, so you know this word. in the South, that word means uh, that person and everyone you associate with that person. In a sentence, um, it sounds a little bit like, uh, hey, how's you doing? How's your mama And them. And now, um, they said to say goodnight and not goodbye, unplugged the TV when it rained. They hid money in mattresses, so to sleep on decisions. Some of their children were not their children. Some of their parents had no birth dates. They could sweat a cold out of you. They'd wake without an alarm telling them to. Even the short ones reached certain shelves. Even the skinny cooked animals too quick to catch and I don't care how ugly one of them arrived, that one got married to somebody fine. They fed families with change and wiped their kitchens clean. Then another century came. People like me forgot their names. I'm gonna read a few poems that are for and about and inspired by some of those people that I think of as my own personal nim. Mm -hmm. The Tradition. Aster, nasturtium, delphinium. We thought fingers in dirt meant it was our dirt. Learning names in heat, in elements classical philosophers said could change us. Stargazer, foxglove. Summer seemed to bloom against the wheel of the sun, which news reports claimed flamed hotter on this planet than when our dead fathers wiped sweat from their necks. Cosmos, baby's breath. Men like me and my brothers filmed what we painted. For proof we existed before too late. Sped the video to see blossoms brought in seconds, colors you expect in poems where the world ends. Everything cut down. John Crawford, Eric Garner, Mike Brown. This next poem deals with the myth of Ganymede. I think. Um, Even if you don't know, it's a Greek myth, which you can look up uh, at another time, but even if you don't know this particular myth, I think everything you need to know about it is in the poem. Ganymede. A man trades his son for horses. That's the version I prefer. I like the safety of it. No one at fault, everyone rewarded. God gets the boy, the boy becomes immortal. His father rides until grief sounds as good as the gallop of an animal born to carry those who patrol our inherited kingdom. When we look at myth this way, nobody bothers saying, rape. I mean, don't you want God to want you? Don't you dream of someone with wings taking you up? And when the master comes for our children, he smells like the men who own stables in heaven, that far terrain between promise and apology. No one has to convince us. The people of my country believe we can't be hurt if we can be bought. Y'all stop clapping. Uh, Janis Joplin recorded the Gershwin Standard Summertime with Big Brother and The Holding Company for their 1968 chart-topping album, Cheap Thrills. I got some Janis Joplin fans out there already. <laughs> Look at it. Uh, she died of a heroin overdose in 1970. She was, she was 27 years old. Um, track five, Summertime, as performed by Janis Joplin. God's got his eye on me, but I ain't a sparrow. I'm more like a lawn no, a chainsaw, anything that might mangle each manicured lawn in Port Arthur, a place I wouldn't return to if the mayor offered me every ounce of oil my daddy cans at the refinery. My voice, I mean, ain't sweet, nothing nice about it. It won't fly, even with Jesus watching. I don't believe in Jesus. The Baxter boys climbed a tree just to throw persimmons at me. The good and perfect gifts from above hit like lightning, leave bruises. So I lied. I believe, but I don't think God likes me. The girls in the locker room slapped dirty pads across my face. They called me bitch, but I never bit back. I ain't a dog. Chainsaw, I say. My voice hacks at you. I bet I tear my throat. I try so hard to sound jagged, I get high and say one thing so many times, like Willie Baker, who worked across the street. I saw some kids whip him with a belt while he repeated, please, school out, summertime, and the living lashed. Mama said I should be thankful that the town's worse to coloreds than they are to me, that I'd grow out of my acne. God must love Willie Baker, all that leather, and still a please that sounds like music. See, I wouldn't know a sparrow from a mockingbird. The band plays, I just belt out, please, this tune ain't half the blues. I should be thankful, I get high and moan like a lawnmower, so nobody notices, I'm such an ugly girl. I'm such an ugly girl. I try to sing like a man. Boys call boy. I turn my face to God. I pray. I wish I could pour oil on everything green in Port Arthur. Wrote this next poem after finding out about and being confounded by the very long list of people who have supposedly committed suicide. While in police custody, um, it includes people like Jesus, who were out there in North Carolina, who, after having been patted down and while handcuffed on the walk from the police cruiser to the building where he was to be booked, somehow managed to shoot himself in the back corner of his head. And Victor White the Third in Louisiana, where I'm from, who, after having been patted down while handcuffed, sitting in the back of a police cruiser, somehow managed to shoot himself in his upper back. Um, And Sandra Bland in Texas, who, after a day of fighting for her life, um, according to a video, Actually, not according to a video. Uh, She hang herself with a trash bag in a cell that has video of her up until the moment that the coroner says she hung herself with a trash bag. Somehow or another, the video goes out just before that point. Bullet points. I will not shoot myself in the head, and I will not shoot myself in the back. And I will not hang myself with a trash bag. And if I do, I promise you, I will not do it in a police car while handcuffed or in the jail cell of a town I only know the name of because I have to drive through it to get home. Yes. I may be at risk, but I promise you I trust the maggots who live beneath the floorboards of my house to do what they must to any carcass, more than I trust an officer of the law of the land to shut my eyes like a man of God might, or to cover me with a sheet so clean my mother could have used it to tuck me in. When I kill me, I will do it the same way most Americans do, I promise you cigarette smoke, or a piece of meat on which I choke, or so broke I freeze in one of these winters we keep calling worst. I promise if you hear of me dead anywhere near a cop, then that cop killed me. He took me from us and left my body, which is, no matter what we've been taught, greater than the settlement a city can pay a mother to stop crying and more beautiful than the new bullet fished from the folds of my brain." So it's new that um, everybody's really proud of having been a nerd. It's like the popular thing to be now. Um, it wasn't so great when we were actual nerds in school, though. and. Um, and I think I was a very special kind of a nerd. I know everybody thinks their nerd was special. But, um, you know, I could, we couldn't afford video games, so I couldn't be a video game nerd. And I remember, when I, I remember asking my mom for a, video, for a video game. I have never heard her laugh like that before. And, um, and I, you know, you can build community around video games. You can be, if you're a comic book nerd, you know, you would go to the comic book store and you would build community because you'd see the other people at the comic book store. So I I was indeed a very special kind of a nerd because I was a riddle nerd. Um, I would memorize the riddles and highlights and I really thought, can you imagine? It's true though. Um, Wow. So uh, when, I was, uh, when I realized um, I wanted more than anything in the world to be a poet, uh, I wanted uh, to write a poem that was also a riddle. So I had been trying for a long time to write a poem that was also a riddle. And I had been failing over and over again because um, in order to write a riddle, you have to know the answer in order to create the questions. But in order to write a poem, you can't know where you're going at all. Right, So um, I decided that uh, the poem was more important than the riddle. So I have a poem that's a riddle, but I don't know the answer <laughs> to the riddle. So maybe, maybe y'all can figure it out and write to me and let me know or something. Riddle. We do not recognize the body of Emmett Till. We do not know the boy's name nor the sound of his mother wailing. We have never heard a mother wailing. We do not know the history of this nation in ourselves. We do not know the history of ourselves on this planet because we do not have to know what we believe we own. We believe we own your bodies but have no use for your tears. We destroy the body that refuses use. We use maps we did not draw. We see a sea, so cross it. We see a moon, so land there. We love land so long as we can take it. Shh. We can't take that sound. What is a mother wailing? We do not recognize music until we can sell it. We sell what cannot be bought. We buy silence. Let us help you. How much does it cost to hold your breath underwater? Wait, wait. What are we? What? What on earth are we? What? As as Rebecca mentioned, I um, invented a form, which is another feature of this particular book. Uh, The form is is called a duplex. I hope all of you will write one. Um, It's a form that is at once a huzzle, a sonnet, and a blues poem, and I think you'll be able to hear All of those forms come through. Um, I was thinking about how to merge time and space into one single form. And I was also thinking about uh, being uh, one body that carries several identities and carries several subjectivities and carries all of them whole. Duplex. I begin with love, hoping to end there. I don't want to leave a messy corpse. I don't want to leave a messy corpse full of medicines that turn in the sun. Some of my medicines turn in the sun. Some of us don't need hell to be good. Those who need most need hell to be good. What are the symptoms of your sickness? Here is one symptom of my sickness. Men who love me are men who miss me. Men who leave me are men who miss me in the dream where I am an island. In the dream where I am an island, I grow green with hope. I'd like to end there. You all right? This water, you want some water? Yeah, you want it? No? You good? They got water over there, too. I'm just saying, you don't have to choke at my poetry. You can have water. (laughs) Dark. I am sick of your sadness, Jericho Brown. Your blackness, your books. Sick of you laying me down so I forget how sick I am. I'm sick of your good looks, your debates, your concern, your determination to keep your butt plump, the little money you earn. I'm sick of you saying no when yes is as easy as a young man. Bored with you saying yes to every request, though you're as tired as anyone else, yet consumed with a single diagnosis of health. I'm sick of your hurting. I see that you're blue. You may be ugly, but that ain't new. Everyone you know is just as cracked. Everyone you love is as dark, or at least as black. So I think I'll finish with some love poems. Can I read you some love poems? Is that okay? It's good to ask for consent. So, Y'all said yes, right? Yes. I remember you said yes. <laughs> so if, anybody, if anybody's here on a date, I hope this works. <laughs> 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 Your body made heavy with gin. I can relax. I smell liquor on your breath. Soon your arms will be too heavy to lift and I'll watch the weight of you shiver while you sleep. But first, I want to see that stagger, like a boy sent off to battle, shot then sent back. I kept one once, he'd never get a good doze, only quake and dream of hands aimed at his throat. He'd cough and gag, I'd shake him awake. He was, as you are, He could have died in my bed. He could have never stopped dreaming. He'd take me for the enemy. We'd fight. But you and I won't fight tonight. I'll remember some limping lover and talk all I want about war. Or maybe I won't. Maybe I don't care who survives. I only need to watch your body made heavy with gin as I hold you up from your fall at the threshold because I love you and I love you best with liquor on your breath when I can get a good look at you just the way I found you reeking and too drunk to go after the roaches with the heel of your hand and too drunk to take me for one of the roaches. This is a poem about cuddling. It's my favorite thing to do. Stand. Peace on this planet or guns glowing hot. We lay there together as if we were getting something done. It felt like planting a garden or planning a meal for a people who still need feeding. All that touching or barely touching not saying much, not adding anything. The cushion of it, the skin and occasional sigh, all seemed like work worth mastering. I'm sure somebody died while we made love. Somebody killed, somebody black. I thought then of holding you as a political act. I may as well have held myself. We didn't stand for one thought didn't do a damn thing. And though you left me, I'm glad we didn't. And I'll finish with, um, I'll finish with a duplex. Uh, it's the last poem in the book, and therefore also the last, uh, the last duplex in the book. Um, as, I, as I mentioned to you all, the, the poem takes on three forms into one, but this particular duplex is also a cento, um, but rather than taking lines from uh, poems by other, other people, this duplex, this Cinto, takes its lines from all of the other duplexes in the book because I'm attracted to difficulty, <laughs> which, is, which, is a wonderful, which is a wonderful trait to have if you want to be a poet. Not so good if you want to be in a relationship. <laughs> Duplex, Cinto. My last love drove a burgundy car, color of a rash, a symptom of sickness. We were the symptoms, the road, our sickness. None of our fights ended where they began. None of the beaten end where they began. Any man in love can cause a messy corpse. But I didn't want to leave a messy corpse, obliterated in some lilied field. stench obliterating lilies of the field, the murderer young and unreasonable. He was so young, so unreasonable. Steadfast and awful, tall as my father. Steadfast and awful, my tall father was my first love. He drove a burgundy car. Thank y'all
1: so much. We'll hear more from Jericho Brown and Copper Canyon editor and poet Elena Alice in a moment. But first, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our Community Access Tickets Program, or CAT, as we call it. At Sal, we believe that reading, writing, and creative thinking are indispensable to a curious, engaged, and democratic society. Our goal is to make these experiences available to as many people as possible. If you're living in the Seattle area and you find yourself facing economic hardship, we encourage you to apply for CAT. CAT allows folks to be entered into a drawing for free tickets to any of our events. Look for a link at the bottom of our homepage at lectures.org to sign up. We hope you can join us. And now, back to Jericho Brown.
2: How many of you had never heard Jericho read before? Oh, so lucky. So I wanted to say to you, before, we, before I ask you the tough questions, that I feel so lucky, and I now know that so many of you in this room are so lucky, we are all so lucky to be um, living while you're living, Jericho Brown, and while you're writing. So lucky that you're alive and writing. I'm so grateful for that, grateful to be in poetry while you're in poetry. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Elena. Yeah. I feel this way too about this time. This is, um, I was actually telling somebody this. Actually, I was just telling you this as I was walking by the Copper Canyon Press book table and I saw the, um, the books, I was like, oh, I love this book. Oh, here's another, and I didn't realize it was the Copper Canyon Press book table. I think this has been such a wonderful year for poetry, but obviously for poetry at the best press in the whole wide world, you know, so.
2: Thank you. We, we are so grateful to, uh, to be working with you. And so The Tradition is your third book. Have y'all seen this beautiful cover?
0: Isn't that nice? Isn't that special? Y'all haven't seen it? They can't see it from that far away, so they're it's not. It's so beautiful. You'll have to, you have to go to f- the
2: table and purchase it from Open Books tonight.
0: When you see um, it, you'll say, you know, even if I don't like these poems, I should really have this cover. You should. I'm serious about that. I mean mm. that. Yeah.
2: This is your third book. And I've heard you talk about the way that this book pursued you or haunted you uh, in a way that was different than your first two. And I wonder if you'll tell us about that. And I, I just wanna know, what did, it, what did it want from you?
0: Yeah, um, my editor, Michael Wiegers, called me, I think, in um, September. He asked me um, how far along I was toward a new book and he said, um, you know, let me see what you've got because I might have a space for you. We have a space for you. If you have something, we'll have a space where something can come out in 2019. And I looked at the number of poet, the number of pages I had and I said, Michael, I don't have anything, so I'm sorry. Which was fine with me because I write, I generally write pretty slowly. I mean, for me, writing is much more about enjoying failure than it is anything else. I mean that, that sounds funny, but I mean that sincerely. Like I'm sort of having a good time with sounds and not trying to, I'm not under the impression that I have to record I Will Always Love You every day. I don't think every time I get up from the writing table I should have a poem. Do you know what I mean? Um, I love that
2: that was your analogy. Just yeah, now. I know,
0: right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I don't wake up Whitney Houston, you know. Um, so, so he called back in um, October, and he said, are you sure? And I said, no. He called me in November. He was like, hey, we got a space for you. How's the writing going? <laughs> I was like, Michael, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think I wrote um, something like uh, 46 pages of poetry, in addition to what I had already been writing since the last book, um, somewhere between Thanksgiving of 2017 and Martin Luther King Day of 2018. Wow. Um, and it was the the most ex- exhilarating, and exhausting, and honestly quite quite scary time of my life. Um, it was exhilarating because I was writing poems, mm. and that's all I want to do all the time. <laughs> so I was very happy. Uh, at the same time, you know, I'm I'm very good about servicing a line, or mm. you know, I would pull over to the side of the wor- road, or I would leave out of the movie theater and um, run to the bathroom and try to write notes in the iPhone of, of, my, of my, in the Notes app of my iPhone. Yeah. And I was, um, I was writing all the time and I had just gotten this new job. So I had to be at like eight and nine o'clock in the morning meetings. So I was getting up, I would like turn over the draft at 7.30 and start getting dressed, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I would write all night and go to meetings, then write all night and go to meetings. Wow. So I was completely grateful, but I was also texting my friends Um, so that if I died, there would be evidence that I knew it was coming. And and the only reason I thought I was going to die, I have to tell y'all this, um, I grew up in a very religious household, so I grew up in the church, and if you grow up in the church in Louisiana, that means that which is religious intersects with that which is superstitious. So I was very, I was convinced, you know, one of the things that I've known about myself for a very long time, is that I'm a poet, and I've been very comfortable and happy. Oh, thank God, at least I know. Once I figured it out, I was like, oh, good, I figured the thing out, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Do y'all know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when there's one thing that you know you're good at doing, (laughs) and you're suddenly doing it in a way that you never have before, and you're producing so much, I was under the impression that God was trying to take me out of here. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do know. So I was really afraid that I was going to write like all of these poems one after another and then just fall out or something. Um, but I didn't. Wow,
2: thank you, yeah. God, for... Yeah, hallelujah.
0: <laughs> Both the book
2: and Jericho Brown.
0: And when I got the book in the mail, I mean, you know, we, were, we had been working on the book, doing all of the production, doing copy edits, looking at covers, all kinds of stuff. But it wasn't until I got the book in the mail that I was like, oh, my God, I'm not dead, thank you. <laughs> oh, my God, I get to go on this tour. Do you know what I yeah. mean? So,
1: yeah. So
2: now that you know that it wasn't about uh, a farewell... Um, p- <laughs> uh, masterpiece, yeah, like, yeah. What, what was this, What was that calling? Like why did this book need I, to keep you up all night and need you to leave the movie theater to write things down? And
0: I think I just had a very different, I mean, I was, I was growing up as a human being. I was becoming mm-hmm. more and more an adult and I was having a different experience of, of politics and art and where they intersect. Yeah. Um, you know, when Moonlight came out, I think I saw it mm-hmm. seven times in mm-hmm. seven days. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading Claudia Rankin's Citizen over and over again. Mm -hmm. I was um, dealing with politics and the the view of politics that we've all been dealing with in ways that I had not before. Um, I was also being angry about people finding out about things that I had been telling them my entire Mm -hmm. life about Mm -hmm. politics. Um, I was also in a position where for the first time in my life I had my own yard. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the earliest poems of, of, this, of this book were really supposed to, and still are, they are, but they, they do other things as well. But they're pastoral poems in yeah. the Southern tradition. They're poems about flowers, you know, poems about trees, poems about the fact that at, the, at dawn and dusk you see rabbits in my yard, mm-hmm. you know. Um, poems about the process of landscaping and doing what has been handed down all the way to me for generations in my family. Um, when I began this book, it was really Uh, a book that was about flowers. And the fact that when I say flower, um, we all get a different flower in our heads. You know, I'm thinking Dahlia right now, but somebody's got a rose and somebody else has a water lily. Mm. Do y'all know what I mean? And um, I realized somewhere along the way that the same thing happens if I say black man. Mm. And um, so I wanted to over and over again juxtapose these images from the natural world with these images of black men and black, and black boys. And I wanted them to stand together and see what they would do mm. in the work if, if they stood together. And I think all of those things came to fore. And I think the, the, the fact is, and you know, whenever we can, we have to be honest about this. It was the first time I was ever writing poems from a position of complete privilege. Mm. Um, you know, my first book was about finishing a dissertation, and then getting a job, uh, teaching, I'm a college professor. And then my second book was about getting tenure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. This is the first book I wrote for no reason other than, I didn't think about, I wasn't thinking about keeping the lights on, Mm. and I wasn't thinking about eating. I I wrote this book because I'm a poet. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I think something about that freedom Met all these other things mm-hmm. in a way that didn't necessarily fr- feel free when I was writing the poem. Yeah.
2: yeah, I love this. So you you write about and talk about staying vulnerable to poetry, and you have this beautiful quote in an interview about um, likening, you know, committing to a relationship to poetry to falling in love and you say you can't fall in love and not be vulnerable. Yeah. But yeah. this is what came up for me today when or I was, when I was reading this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, so exactly. Yeah. You can't fall in love and not be vulnerable, but what about staying in love? Mm-hmm. So when, so what about this like lasting relationship that you have now with poetry and how do you mm-hmm. over time stay vulnerable to it? And how do you, over, yeah, how's your relationship going? Are there fights? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> are you in therapy? Yeah, yeah, Like what? Not you personally, but you yeah, and yeah. your poetry. You, you don't me, to are, we, you don't watch it. <laughs> are we,
0: are our poetry and I, yeah. are we having marriage counseling yeah, sessions? Yeah, like
2: what's, um, yeah.
0: Always. So, yeah, it gets hard, you know, because part of what you're doing as a poet is every time you go to write a poem, you're reinventing what poetry is to you. Um, that gets particularly difficult and you don't, you don't always have the drive. You always, you, actually you do always have the drive to do that but you don't always know exactly what it is that you're looking for. You mm. know that you're seeking something. Um, as a writer, I do a lot of reading but no matter how much I'm reading, I'm missing something. And part of what I've learned as a writer is that my job is to fill in the something I'm missing, that I need to be making the poems I want to read in the world. Mm. Um, And so I have to, I mean, the real truth about staying vulnerable for me is that I have to keep a lively and vibrant reading life, Mm. which uh, is quite difficult to do, but it takes some work and some, quite honestly, some discipline, uh, you know, um, you have to plan to get reading done and to remain a part of the conversation. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, that's part of the way you stay in love. You literally seek the love out mm. and you don't get bothered by the fact that you come across poems that you don't love. That doesn't mean you don't love poetry. We understand this just fine with music, by the way. Yeah. But you know, I've been taking a lot of planes lately And um, one thing that I figured out, if I want people not to talk to me on the plane, is when they ask me what I do, I just tell them I'm a poet, and they just leave me alone. (laughs) They just never look at me again. Um, (laughs) They don't know what to do with that information. Um, But I also find that there's this thing, this funny thing will happen, I love it, it's so hilarious to me. Um, So what do you do? I'm a poet. I hate poetry. (laughs) It's like, I just told you. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, but let me tell you what I started doing. Let me tell you, oh, it's so funny. This is hilarious. You got to try this out. They say, I hate poetry. And I'll say now, I'll say, really? You don't like any poem? And you know, people will recite a poem. I do know this. Or two.
2: I do know this. And I'm like,
0: you think you hate poetry, but it looks like this has been sustaining you for the last 53 yeah. years. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, and I think our relationship to art is that way. I don't know why we, we have this heavier responsibility on poetry yeah. than we do any other art. Like yeah. nobody thinks, you know, when, we're, when you're in your car and you're listening to music or you're washing dishes and you're listening to music or you're in the shower and you're listening to music, it's the music you chose. I mean, especially this generation. Yeah. It's the music you chose to listen to. And you don't hear it. You're like get, you're doing your thing and you don't hear the music that you put on your playlist, except every once in a while something comes up mm-hmm. and you're suddenly rocking out. Mm-hmm. That's the relationship we literally have to music. Nobody says I hate music.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: That's the relationship we have to visual art. We're walking by and seeing visual art every day all over, I mean, especially in a city like this, it's mm-hmm. everywhere. Sculpture, and nobody painting. Nobody says, I hate art. Nobody's like, like them. I hate paintings. Yeah. <laughs> like, nobody <laughs> says that. And they don't say, trees. <laughs> Y'all see, we see trees all, like, people have real 100%. If I say, think of your tree, look at that.
2: Aww.
0: Isn't that something? <laughs> Everybody can just, it, there it is. That's your tree. You see what I mean? Yeah.
2: There was a way, but, I talked, no, but like you I, yeah. do you know
0: how many trees are not that tree? <laughs> <laughs> but nobody says I hate trees. Yeah. Do you know? What I mean? And I have I to do. that's the thing I have to remember that I'm always and the thing I'm always trying to tell my students, you have to be looking for the magic. It's yeah. not going to that and what is magic to me might not be magic to you.
2: Yeah. I last night I had a conversation with a woman who um, teaches middle school and knew of a middle school teacher who every day of class read a different poem, um, the, the class read the poem aloud, and but they didn't talk about it, it wasn't about analyzing it, it was just about hearing a different poem every day. And we are talking about the brilliance of that for exactly this reason, because then you just get to know that there are a lot of different poems, like there are different songs and different trees.
0: Yes, yes. And? And nobody ever looks at a branch of, of a tree and say, "Oh, I'd like to contextualize this in the 19th century. <laughs>
2: You kind of do um, I think in your <laughs> in your in your work, but um, <laughs> I want to know. Thinking about those um, those middle schoolers who hear the poems every day, and the students who you worked with today, and our brilliant student poet tonight, um, I want to hear about Little Jericho Brown. Um, you've shared you shared uh, recently about being a six or seven year old in the library. Oh
0: yeah, That's Poetry true. coming
2: to find you. Yeah,
0: I loved poetry. Man. Because
2: it's one thing to to figure out that there are a lot of poems in the world and that, that it's, <sighs> we're not gonna hate all of them, but how did poetry come let you know that that this was your path? Yeah,
0: I fell in love with poetry when I was a kid because I was fortunate enough to have a mother who um, couldn't afford childcare but was an improvisational genius. So she would take me and my sister to the library um, when she had to go run whatever errand she needed to run where she couldn't take us. And um, we, we also passed the Morningside branch of the Shreveport Public Library on our way home from school on the walk. So we would, instead of going home, we could just go to the library. Um, and we would go in the library, and there was no trouble because, um, you know, now I don't think you can do this. Um, but we, my mother, no one was worried about us tearing the library up. Because we were afraid of our mother.
2: <laughs> so, um,
0: so the library itself was safe, you yeah. know. Um, and the librarians very quickly, you know, whether, whether, whether they knew it or not, they were our babysitters. They very quickly figured out um, that, that I would sit and read books of poetry for hours on end. And part of that had to do with the fact that poems were short. And so I felt accomplished getting page. I mean, as a seven, you know, I was seven, I was six, I was eight, nine, ten. And so page after page, I would feel like, oh, I'm getting this done. This is over. (laughs) Oh, baby, I read that. And and so the beginning for me was not about analyzing or interpreting. It was about a real disinterested reading and sort of, catching images and liking them or liking the sounds of things. Not really knowing what poems were about per se, um, but every once in a while coming across things that spoke to me in some way and being happy, being happy with that as enough um, at that time. Uh, And also getting a really good education in poetry because uh, the librarians would (laughs) only Librarians weren't really poetry readers, so they gave me the books. They would pile high these books of poetry of the poets they had heard of. Uh So I had read all of the sonnets by Shakespeare, (laughs) I had read Dickinson, I had read uh, Walt Whitman, I had read, um, and then you know, it came a point I had read Langston Hughes, I had read Phyllis Wheatley, Um, I had read Rita Dove.
2: All in that library,
0: yeah. Um, And they, you know. For them, they didn't think so. You know, it, I mean I wouldn't advise it for a depressed 10-year-old. <laughs> but I was reading I was reading Robert Lowell, Sylvia Plath, Ann Sexton, you know, saying and sexton has, has poems with literal titles like Wanting to Die. <laughs> so you know, but that happened, I'm just telling you. So I mean it okay. worked out. I'm not dead. Yeah. But do you under you yeah. understand what I'm saying? So I was reading um, wow. I mean, I loved Sexton because I could always get from the beginning to, and the end and I felt like, oh, I know exactly what she's talking about. So I think, I mean, that was my early education in poetry.
2: That's incredible. There are a lot of adults who wouldn't get from the beginning to an end of an Anne Sexton poem and say <laughs> that I know exactly what she's talking about. So um, I have all these wonderful questions that people wrote down and I've been too interested in looking at your face and listening to you to look at them. So we're going to see. Um, okay, let's see. How has your experience you <laughs> we're going we're going with this one. How's your experience in the black church affected your work, and do you intentionally infuse it or is it simply a part of your person?
0: I think it's simply a part of my my person i don't I don't really intentionally do much of anything mm-hmm. when I'm writing a poem until I'm at the point of revision, and for me, the point of revision is quite late, Um, Janine Walker's here so she'll know what I'm talking about. And anyone who has worked with WITS knows that there's writing that you do before the thing you call the first draft. And in WITS, we used to call that pre-writing and pre writing is really <laughs> the, what I spend most of my time. That's the writing that I'm doing most of the time. The writing that feels like writing, you know, when you really feel like you're working, is revision. But in order to get to the point of revision, you have to do much more pre writing than you do revising. Um, so maybe at the point of revising, I'll notice certain things and I'll push in those directions. Mm-hmm. But those directions have already been made because of pre-writing and that, uh, even, this is even the case with, with, with formal work for me. You know, I'll notice, oh, this rhymes or this could rhyme or I'm repeating, I'll notice something like that, I'm repeating something. So if I'm repeating two lines, I'll say, does this wanna be a villanelle? I mean, those are the kinds of questions that I'm asking my poems. I'm also asking my poems, who is your speaker? I'm asking my poems, what is your occasion? And I'm not assuming going into the poem that I know those things. I'm just starting with some, I usually try to find a way to, cre- some strange way to create a mess of text. And from that mess of text, I create what will then be a first draft. Does that does that answer your question? So, yeah. So the black church is a part of that because that's a, a very basic part of my vernacular mm-hmm. and the way I see the world and the way that I think about form and the way that I think about discipline. Um, from the order of service to the literal way that, the, um, the way that a sanctuary is made in the black Baptist church mm-hmm. um, to the way the music would work, um, the way it would be used to manipulate and create certain kinds of emotions but I do that without thinking about doing it because it's part of who I am. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and the same goes, I have to say, for anything that I write about. Um, I sort of arrive at these things. I don't sit down trying to write poems about the time I blank or trying to write poems of some great political theme. If I were to sit down and do that, I would never write any good, I mean, you know, I know we want wisdom from our poetry, but one way not to get it is to sit down and say, and now I will write my wise poem.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I like what you say about writing a mess, creating a mess of text. Mess of text. Yeah. yeah. That's the yeah. way to go. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you, too, about uh, love and joy.
0: Those are
2: good. <laughs> I like them. You can just go with that if you want to, but but but, I'm all but for it. You, you you as a person and you um and your body of work somehow absolutely miraculously buzz with love and joy, even though, even though, even though, even though, even though, even though right? Where why? <laughs> why? How?
0: Um, because it's true. Hmm. I don't know how it's true, but I know it is. I um I'm sorry, y'all, I get so emotional. I uh you know, when I um my um my grandparents were sharecroppers. Hmm. On both sides of my family, as young as I am, my grandparents were sharecroppers, and so um, when I think about the attitude that they had in the world, you know, they were hardworking people, um, and they created a great deal of violence and anger mm-hmm. <laughs> on this planet. But they also would have me holding my stomach in laughter, mm-hmm. and when I think about the lives that they lived and the world that they created so that I could sit here and do stuff like this, then I understand that as a part of the truth of life. Um, And if I am a poet at all, uh, if I am a poet of witness or a poet at all, then I am not telling the truth if I only witness atrocity. It is there if you want it. Um, but there must be something else there because we keep facing it. Mm-hmm. And part of what I have to write about because I have to tell the truth is that thing that keeps us facing the, not just the atrocity, but what keeps us facing the atrocity and moving through the atrocity and surviving the atrocity and thriving in spite of the atrocity, you know? Um, so it create, even thinking about it just creates a well of gratitude uh, for me because I know I was, pl- I mean, what really brings me great joy and great gratitude is thinking about how so, I was thinking about this when, um, when Naomi was reading her poem, how um, Langston Hughes picked Gwendolyn Brooks for a poetry contest. And so Gwendolyn Brooks got to meet Langston Hughes. Isn't that something? You know what I mean? Yes. Isn't that something? I mean, that's just a fact, and it's just like, oh my God. Isn't that the best? Can you imagine? <laughs> uh, can you imagine like little Gwendolyn Brooks like, ooh, y'all, it's Langston Hughes. <laughs> and Langston Hughes don't even know to be like, oh my God, it's Gwendolyn Brooks. That's right. And, and so much was done that I will never be aware of. So much that people were conscious of and that they were unconscious of so that I can exist. And so then I, I live in that with a certain amount of celebration and joy and gratitude, but real gratitude looks like responsibility. Mm. And so I have a job to do, and I have to do it to the best of my ability because I have to honor what so many dead folk did while they were alive. Mm-hmm. And I have to die one day having done something for somebody else to be able to live. That's just the way it is. You know? I do. Now, Elena, you're make me run my makeup.
2: <laughs> Jericho, your makeup still looks really good.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and <laughs> everybody's like, does he really have makeup? I just said that so y'all can get close. That means you gotta get a book so I can sign it. <laughs> yeah. <it's- laughs>
2: Jericho's gonna be out there um, signing, <laughs> signing these books in a few <laughs> minutes. And um, thank you, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for this reading, thank you thank for you. everything you thank shared. Thank y'all so much thank for you coming. For
0: your joy. I see y'all outside, thank you. That was sweet. thank you.
1: Thanks so much to Jericho Brown for joining us on the South Stage. Thanks as well to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board and community. And thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, make sure to subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.